The following message was given at Trinity Bible Church in Powell, Wyoming. invite you to open to the book of Hebrews. This is our new book that we begin this morning. Why the book of Hebrews? Why study the book of Hebrews other than, of course, it's the Word of God? Because we need, I would submit to you, our greatest need is to behold the glory of God in the face of Christ. What does away with all anxiety, fears, worry? What helps us through difficulty in this life? What were we created for? other than to behold God's glory. Our greatest need is not to make sure circumstances will go our way, that we can guarantee our will would be, will be done, that we will be in control, that we will never suffer again. That is not our greatest need. Our greatest need is to behold the glory of God in the face of Christ. And that's what the book of Hebrews is about. We are peering into the face of of Christ and beholding His glory, being strengthened in the Lord, and as we behold His glory, being transformed into the same image. The book of Hebrews is it comes after the letters of the Apostle Paul, 1st, 2nd Timothy, Philemon, and then before, uh, the, before James, before 1st and 2nd Peter. Now, what we're going to do today, as I usually do when we start a new book, is we're just going to uh, look at an overview or an introduction to the book. So we'll be going throughout uh, the book of Hebrews, various uh, spots uh, to consider an overview. And how I want to introduce the book of Hebrews to you this morning is by asking you to turn on your imagination, if, if you will. And I want you to imagine that you are a spokesperson for this incredible, most amazing amusement park. Uh, this amusement park has all the sights, sounds, and smells that you can imagine that overloads uh, every sense that you have. It's sensory overload. Uh, this is uh, the way the amusement park has been for years and years. So important. And so amazing is this amusement park that every family in the country takes a long trip to this amusement park three times a year. It's a long-standing tradition. But the park owner has been promising for a long time that something new and better is coming. So there's a lot of anticipation. What can be new and better than what it already is? And so everyone's waiting and wondering, what is this new and better thing that's more exciting to the senses than it can already be? And finally, the day arrives for this new and better thing to be revealed and as a spokesperson, of course, you are called to the team meeting for the park owner to reveal the new and better thing. 
and you're so you're sitting at this table. The park owner walks in, and there's a lot of anticipation. There's a lot of excitement, and he says, "Here is the new and better thing." There's a drum roll. There's a curtain that that unveils the new plan. And he says the new and better thing is all the sights, all the sounds, all the smells, all the things that give the sensory overload is going to be taken away. And everyone sits around confused, wondering what what just happened? It's jarring. What do you mean it's going to be taken away? And so after a long pause, somebody finally says, but what are you going to replace it with? And the park owner says, a weak man's voice and a couple of symbols of water, bread, and wine. And then he turns to you as the spokesperson for the park and says, now go out and tell everybody about this. And tell them to come. How would you sell that as a spokesperson? What sort of sales pitch or arguments would you make to try to convince people to come to this? Do you have any idea? And maybe the deeper question is, is this really going to last? You go from all these sites... All these sounds, all these smells, to nothing, essentially? How is this better? How is this a good plan, you may be wondering. Now, I use that illustration to help us understand the change from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. Now, of course, it's just an illustration. It's not a one-to-one correlation with everything. It falls short. God is obviously not in the entertainment business. God is not a bad manager for an amusement park. Uh, he's not trying to sell fun. Uh, but it's similar in that you go from the sights, the sounds, the smells of the Old Covenant to all of that getting removed. And that's supposed to be better. You can understand the issue now with the audience of the book of Hebrews. I think we don't really fully appreciate this because we haven't experienced the Old Covenant. When we think of the Old Covenant, we think of, man, I'm glad I don't need to keep all those rules. I can't even keep track of all those rules. I'm glad I don't need to sacrifice an animal. I mean, the prices of cattle nowadays uh, wouldn't be able to afford it. But think about it from a Jew's perspective under the Old Covenant. Everything was grand. Everything was beautiful. Everything hit the senses in an amazing way. We went through the book of Exodus and we saw all the detailed instructions with the tabernacle and and the furniture and the priest's garments. And we find those details laborious when we go through them. We're doing a Bible reading plan. That's something, oh no, I've got to read all the instructions for the tabernacle. But when you put them all together, especially when some uh, study Bibles do this or or other resources do this, and they picture it. It is quite beautiful. It is quite grand. And the priests, the garments alone, were some of the most amazing attire 
The, the high priest was the best dressed man in the entire nation of Israel and really stood out. And then you add on top of that, not only the beauty of the tabernacle and the gold and the furniture and the high priest's attire, you add on top of that the visible presence of God in a cloud ascending and descending upon the tabernacle. And then you have an altar that you can see upon which the sacrifice you offered was, was placed upon. And you have this, this tangible animal that you would put your hand on and lean on and confess your sins over, knowing that that animal is bearing your sins. And you see that animal get sacrificed and get put to death. And you see that animal then get put on the altar and burn, and you see the smoke ascend up to heaven, knowing that your sins have been dealt with. And you have a priest that knows you personally, to whom you confess your sins, who gives you personal assurance of pardon. There's so much assurance tied up with all of this. And then all of that is taken away. And then you add on top of that, hearing the trumpet blast, hearing all the instruments for their music and worship, and then the temple that Solomon built was even more grand. Even the, the later on temple during the time of Jesus walking the earth was grand. It took 46 years to build. And the disciples commented upon its beauty. And the new and better thing is all of that is removed. How is this better? And that is what the author of Hebrews is addressing. He's like the spokesperson who has to try to convince the hearers that the new park without all the sights, sounds, and smells is better. Of course, it's not an amusement park. It's just an illustration. But he's trying to convince them that this worship is better. Now, this is likely a sermon that was written down because in Hebrews 13.22, he refers to it as a word of exhortation. A word of exhortation in, Hebrew, in Acts 13.15 is called a sermon. That's the word for a sermon. And this is written by an unknown author, some surmise Paul. Some of my close friends who are Reformed strongly believe the Apostle Paul wrote it. Others believe Barnabas or Apollos. Uh, I don't believe we ultimately know for sure. Uh, but we do know God the Holy Spirit wrote this. And that this is not just written to those who are familiar with the Old Covenant. And this is why it's called Hebrews. Because Hebrews is another name for Jews. And with him addressing those who are familiar with the Old Covenant, it's likely Jews who are involved, but I don't think it only is Jews. I think it could be Gentiles who are familiar with the Old Covenant. But he's trying to convince them why the New Covenant, with all of this removed, is better. And the focus is all on Christ and His glory, which we do not see by sight, but rather by faith. His whole argument is to not turn away from Christ back to the Old Covenant, but to walk by faith and not by sight or sensory. And so he argues why Christ is better 
You may think, okay, well, I'm not tempted to go to the Old Covenant. I know a couple of friends that might be, and they're just strange, and they don't affect me. But this certainly has application for us. While we may not want to turn back to the Old Covenant, there's many temptations to leave Christ and to follow the world, but also when it comes to worship and the pleasing sensory experience. Look at Eastern Orthodoxy. That's gaining popularity. They have all the sights. They're, They're returning to the sights and sounds and smells. And that was a huge issue during the medieval period that required the Reformation to happen. It was Reformation of worship. You also have Roman Catholicism with regards to the priest and, and, and the other sites that they have. And even in modern evangelicalism, the smoke machine, the entertain, the need to entertain people, the need to have exciting things in worship, that it needs to please the senses. And if it doesn't, then it doesn't make the cut. Even if Christ is preached. Even if Christ and His glory through His Word is put on display. What the issue is, is we need to see Christ. We need to be satisfied with Christ. We need to glory in Christ. Christ needs to be enough for us because He is enough. We may be the worst singers in the world. Not you guys. You guys do fine. I'm, I'm a terrible singer. We may not stay on tune. We may not uh, be as exciting as other congregations. But is Christ proclaimed? Is Christ seen through His Word? Then that should be enough and satisfy our hearts. And that is what the book of Hebrews is about. Seven subjects that reveal that Jesus is better is our outline. And you're thinking, oh my goodness, that introduction was 15 minutes, and now we're going to have seven points? Don't worry, I'll go through it rather quickly. So seven subjects that reveal Jesus is better. The first is messengers of old. We begin in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 1. Right out of the gate, the author of Hebrews begins his sermon with, Long ago, and many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by or in His Son. So right away, the author of Hebrews says, let's talk about the two ways in which God has spoken. Two main mediums. Notice God is the one speaking in both. But there's two different ways, or two different main mediums. Uh, one is referred to as long ago. It doesn't mean need to be a long time. It's just in times past where he spoke to the fathers. Uh, that is the old Jews or Israelites, the ancient Israelites. And this medium was by the prophets. Now, as I'll argue, many times and in many ways is better translated as many parts or many pieces. And that is God's revelation during the Old Covenant or during Old Testament times was not whole was not complete. And that the reason why that's important, given the context that I was talking about with regards to the Old Covenant, is we go from seeing all these amazing things to now hardly seeing anything. How is that better? Ah, but that revelation was only in part. That was only in pieces. That was types and shadows. 
Contrast that to now. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. We notice, by the way, that we're in the last days because these last days he's spoken to us in his son. God does not need to speak in many pieces and parts when he speaks in his son because he speaks wholly in his son. Because his son in his very person is the very word of God, the revelation of God. All that God is, the son is equal in power authority, and glory. And so whereas the prophets were instruments through which God's Word was spoken, the Son is the Word of God. And that is why Hebrews 1.3 goes on to say, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. He can speak in His Son because The Son is the very radiance of His glory. The exact imprint, exactly like the Father in His eternal, infinite nature. Distinct person, but reflects Him exactly. He is the revelation of God. To see the Son is to see the Father, as Jesus said in John 14.9. And so... This is why, despite losing all those sights, sounds, and smells of the Old Covenant, the revelation in the New is truly better. God is spoken climatically in His Son. And this is important for the second subject that reveals that Jesus is better. And that second subject is the angels. The author segues from God speaking climatically in His Son to talking about angels in verse 4. And this talk about angels is going to continue on through the entire uh, chapter 2, entirety of chapter 2. The segue is seen in verse 4. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. We're going to talk about that in in the weeks ahead. And then for the rest of chapter 1, the author gives several Old Testament references to support his point that Jesus is better and superior to the angels. Why does that matter? Chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? So what he's talking about here is the revelation of the Old Covenant actually came through angels. Uh, The Apostle Paul says the same thing in in Galatians uh, 3.19. Now the Old Testament doesn't focus on it. It just kind of mentions it in passing. For example, Deuteronomy 33 says, God came with his holy ones, referring to angels, in flaming fire. So the scene of God descending on Mount Sinai, which had all these sights. I mean, the whole mountain's on fire. You have the trembling. You have the trumpet blast. Also included God coming with angels, which makes sense because God's presence is often associated with angels. They were embroidered on the curtains into the most holy place where God's presence was. Uh, They were figured on the Ark of the Covenant where God said, 
particularly that's where I'll meet with you, the angels covering this presence. Uh, this is a replica of the angels guarding the way back into the holy place in the Garden of Eden. And also the vision that Isaiah saw in the temple with the Lord on his throne. There are angels on either side of him crying out, holy, holy, holy. So when God descended on Mount Sinai to deliver the law, the angels were there and it was through them that it was delivered. And this might sound superior to that of the new covenant. And the old covenant had angels and what do we have? However, the revelation in these last days was delivered by God himself, by the Son of God. Hebrews 2.3 says it was declared by the Lord himself, that is by God's Son in human flesh, veiling his glory in by assuming humanity. And then it was attested to those or to us by those who heard directly from the Lord. So they heard directly from the Lord. These are the apostles. They say, this is what he has said. We have witnessed this. And then God attested to the message that they brought by miraculous gifts of the Holy Spirit, Hebrews 2, 4. So this revelation came directly from the Son, who is superior to the angels. And if there was sure judgment for the message that was delivered through angels, then how much more from God the Son? This is why the author of Hebrews spent the whole chapter establishing that the Son is superior to the angels. And perhaps this is the most glorious sight of the Old Covenant, uh, that they had angels. I mean, imagine going from angels to, to nothing. You know, if there, was a, there was a church in town where part of their worship service that they had actual angels. Do you think that they would be popular? Yeah, I think people would want to attend that worship service uh, than, than any others. And so similarly, the, the Hebrews could say, look, we go from having this mediated through angels to this man who is crucified. How can this be better? Well, it, was, it came that this man is the Son of God in whom God has spoken, who is the very radiance of his glory, who created the angels and therefore is superior to them. And, and the next glorious thing of the Old Covenant under angels is the great and revered Moses, perhaps the most revered human by the Jews. It seems like what the Hebrew writer is doing is he's addressing the, the glory of the Old Covenant in descending order. So we go from angels, now we go to the most important man to the Jews, and that's Moses. Hebrews 3.3 3. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. As much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. Now to say someone is worthy of more glory than Moses is not a light statement to the Jews. That would only be true of the Messiah. And of course, Jesus is the Messiah, and he is the one who is worthy of more glory than Moses. Because whereas Moses was a servant or just a piece of the house, Jesus is the builder of that house. He's building his church. And the other reason why Jesus has more glory then Moses is stated in verses 5 through 6, where it says, this is in chapter 3, Now Moses was faithful in all of God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. 
So a typical ancient Near Eastern household. You had servants or attendants, and then you had the son who was the heir. Obviously, the son being the heir would be more important than the servants or attendants. And that's what the author of Hebrews is saying. A fourth subject that reveals that Jesus is better is Joshua. This is in chapter 4. Now, generally, Joshua is not as revered by the Jews as Moses. But nevertheless, whereas Moses could not bring the people into the promised land, Joshua did. He is the one who led the people into the land of Canaan to subdue it. And what's significant about the land of Canaan? Well, God said it was their rest. It was their rest with him. This is the final spot to which they were all going. And we read in Joshua 21, 44-45 that God fulfilled his promise. It says, And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. God gave them rest. He fulfilled His promise. Now, there's a, some confusion here, isn't there? God gave them rest, and why didn't it last? And there's some debate among theologians. Well, you know, this is, you know, it literally says God gave, God fulfilled all His promises, and it states it emphatically. Not one word came to, came to, to fail. They say, oh, but, you know, there's still some more to come. Well, the confusion is this. There's actually a greater rest. And this is what the author of Hebrews brings up. While God gave, did give them rest through Joshua, there's a greater rest from a greater Joshua. And he brings that out in chapter 4. And in Hebrews 4.8, referencing Psalm 95, the Hebrew writer says, For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. Now the way he's arguing is a way that they believe that God did give them rest. And he has to show, no, that's actually, there's actually something greater that's coming. If, if Joshua had given them that final rest, God would not have spoken of another day of rest. And what he's referring to is Psalm 95. Uh, Psalm 95 says, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart as they did, for God swore they won't enter my rest. And what's significant about that, the inference that the Hebrew writer is drawing out of that, is who wrote Psalm 95, the human author? Well, King David, right? Well, where are they when King David writes that? They're in the land of Canaan, which is now called Israel, which is their rest. So if they're in their rest, why does David write, don't fail to enter God's rest? It's kind of like, uh, you, you have this new home that uh, you've been waiting for. You, you had it uh, custom made. You had it built. You move in. You're sitting in your new home. And somebody says to you, don't fail to enter your new home. You're like, what? What are you talking about? I'm already here. 
Well, they're in their land of rest. And the Holy Spirit says, don't fail to enter God's rest. And what the Hebrew writer is saying is, this implies there's a greater rest. The, the land of Canaan was a type of a heavenly rest. A heavenly rest that a greater Joshua... By the way, do you want, do you know what the name Joshua means? It means Jesus. That a greater Joshua would bring to them. And that, of course, is Jesus. He is the greater Joshua who brings us as people into a greater rest. And how do we enter that rest? Simply by resting in Christ and His works for us. And this rest is actually God's rest, which is spoken about in Genesis chapter 2. where That's why He brings up the seventh day in chapter 4, verses 4. Because that is a symbol of God's rest. And Adam, under the covenant of works, by his works, was supposed to enter that rest. He failed to enter that eternal rest. And that's why we need a second Adam that is going to bring us into that rest. And this is typified, or this is pictured in Joshua. Something that the law, represented by Moses, could not do, bringing us into God's rest. A Joshua, whose name means Jesus does by His works bring us into that rest. And therefore we rest from our works by resting in this greater Joshua's works. Who who is the one who brings us into God's rest? This brings us to the fifth subject that reveals that Jesus is better. How does He bring us into this rest? Well, the fifth subject pertains to the priest. This is chapters in chapters 5-8, through eight, and it's really the main or central focus of the book of Hebrews. After warning us to not fail to enter the rest that the better Joshua gives, the Hebrew writer goes on to conclude, and this is in verse, uh, this is in chapter four, verses fourteen. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. So. After warning us, don't fail to enter God's rest. When you hear the warning passage in Scripture, how do you respond? Man, I better get my I better I better really take my obedience seriously. I really better get my act together. I really better take this more seriously. I'm gonna try so much harder. I am gonna just really grit down and do better. What should our response be to the warning passages in Scripture? We should take it seriously, but do we look to ourselves? Well, what does the writer of Hebrews say? Since then, so here's the response to the warning, since then we have a great high priest. He's the one who has passed through the heavens for us. Let us hold fast our confession. Let us hold fast our faith in Him that we confess out loud. So this is how you respond to the warning passages in Scripture. It's not by looking to yourself. It is by looking to Christ. And that means it's trusting in Him and His work. It's knowing that He is our High Priest. He intercedes for us. He didn't just pass through that veil like the Old Testament priest did, figuring passing through the heavens. He actually passed through the heavens for us. He is a greater High Priest. 
So it is by recognizing and resting in our high priest, our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who brings us to heaven into that eternal promised land by his works alone. And this is where the author speaks of Jesus as a better high priest than Aaron. His basic point here is that Aaron is in the line of the Levites. That's tied back to Abraham. Now, a priest, in order to be a priest in the Old Covenant, you had to be a Levite. You had to be in the tribe of Levi, your family line. Jesus comes from which tribe? Not Levi, but Judah. That creates a problem. He can't be a priest because he's not a Levite. So the author of Hebrews answers that by saying his order isn't the order of Levi coming from Abraham. Abraham's not the pattern. His order is of a different kind. It's of Melchizedek. Now, who is this Melchizedek person? Well, he goes on to explain Melchizedek. Melchizedek, his name in the Hebrew means king of righteousness. Melech uh, means king. Zedek means righteousness. Those are the Hebrew words for king and righteousness. He's the king of righteousness. And also he's the king of Salem, which is short for Jerusalem. And he's unique. He's unique because he's both a priest and a king. So here you have this king, king of Jerusalem no less, who's also a priest. Those two offices weren't combined during the Old Covenant. But then you have this figure where the offices were combined, Melchizedek. He's both priest and king. And then Hebrews 7.3 says, He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. And so some people have kind of debated this. Is this an angel? Uh, is this the angel of the Lord? Uh, some have believed that. I think the more, uh, the more appropriate interpretation is that where it says he, um, but resembling the Son of God here in Hebrews 7.3, to bring out the Greek more accurately, should be translated as he was made to resemble the Son of God. That is, the Holy Spirit used him as a type of Christ. It's, if, he's a, if he's a real human, he's going to have a father and mother. But in a book where genealogies are very, very important, his genealogy is left out. And that's strange because he's actually more important than Abraham. The lesser is blessed by the greater, and that's, that's beyond dispute, and Abraham paid tithes to him. So, okay, here you have this, this person who's a priest and a king. He's king of Jerusalem. We don't have any genealogies for him, and he's more important than Abraham. You would think that the genealogies would be included for this very important person. It's not. And what... Hebrews 7.3 is saying is that he was made to resemble the Son of God. Because the Son of God doesn't, in his divine nature, come from any human. And so this is figuring the Son of God and also saying that 
Christ's priesthood would not come from Abraham. It would come from the order of Melchizedek. And this reveals that Christ's priesthood is superior because Abraham, with Levi in his loins, paid tithes in respect to Melchizedek. Now flowing from this, a sixth subject that reveals that Jesus is better is he offers a better sacrifice. Better priest, the priest offers a sacrifice, he offers a better sacrifice. Hebrews 9, 11-12 says that Christ's sacrifice was not in the earthly copies. That is, the, the tabernacle here on earth, which is just a copy of heavenly realities. His sacrifice was offered for our sins before God, brought about by the power of the Holy Spirit. That Christ offered Himself for our sins to God. And it was not by the blood of animals, but rather His very own blood. And because of this, the end of verse 12 says that Christ has secured an eternal redemption. An eternal redemption. All those sacrifices of animals were not eternal. They were typological. They put you in a right relationship with God is revealed in the tabernacle so that you wouldn't be cast out of the land so you can draw near to the tabernacle or the temple. But it wasn't eternal. And it was only temporary. That's why they needed to be repeated every time somebody committed a particular sin. And this is because, as Hebrews 10.4 says, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. But we read in verses 5 through 7, a quote of Christ Himself from Psalm 40 about offering up His body as a sacrifice, dying in our place to pay for our sins. And because of that, Hebrews 10.14 says, notice Hebrews 10.14, I want you to look at that verse. Hebrews 10.14 says, For by a single offering, He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. This is an important verse that we need to take a moment to meditate on. Because the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sins, there was no end to them until Christ came. Because Christ is the Lamb of God who takes away our sins, He only needed to offer Himself up once. And so by a single offering, by His one death, He has, notice what it says, perfected us. What does it mean to be perfect? Anything more required when you're perfect? Well, we stand perfect before God. Therefore, nothing further is needed. But will we stay perfect before Him? What if we sin? Okay, we've been perfected, but man, I still have some sin. I can still blow it. Will I stay perfect before Him? Notice what the verse says. He has perfected for how long? All time. You who are in Christ are perfect before God forever. For all time. 
And why is that? What's the basis for that? Because you're going to make sure that you stay clean and keep persevering. Notice the basis. For by a single offering, He has perfected you for all time. One offering, you are perfect before God forever. But wait a minute, wait a minute. I have a lot of sin still. I I fall into sin, you may say. I know I'm not perfect. I have a long way to go. And even though I may justify myself and my sin, yet if I'm real honest with myself, I still blow it. I still struggle with the same sin that keeps tangling me up. How can this verse say, I'm perfect, when I'm not? Well, this verse also says you're not perfect. Do you know how this verse says you're not perfect? He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. What does it mean? Or what does it imply that you're being sanctified? Does that mean you're perfect if you're being sanctified? You know what sanctification is, right? It's, it's this work of God in conforming you more and more into Christ's image. Uh, changing your behavior so it's more and more holy. If you're being sanctified, that means you're not yet perfect in your practice. So what does it mean that we're perfect? Well, we stand perfect before God because all our sins have been forever forgiven by that sacrifice of Christ. We stand perfect on the basis of Christ's righteousness and blood. Our status doesn't change before God. Our sins are forever put away. Our sins are forever washed clean. Our sins are forever forgiven. And yet perfection is ascribed to those who are being sanctified. And notice the passive mood. It doesn't say those who are sanctifying themselves, but those who are being sanctified. Sanctification is the work of God in transforming us into His image. God is the one who's sanctifying us. He who began the good work is the same one who will bring it to completion. So while we do fight sin and temptation by the Holy Spirit, yet the reason we do that is because God is at work in us, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. You see, God has taken care of everything for us. We are perfect for all time, not by anything we do, but by a single sacrifice. Not by a single sacrifice, plus our efforts at reforming ourselves, our efforts at putting sin to death, but by a single sacrifice, perfect for all time. And God is the one who's sanctifying you too. We can rest in Him. As our confession says, we rest on Christ for justification, declared perfect for all time by a single sacrifice. Sanctification. We are being sanctified. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. And eternal life by virtue of the covenant of grace. Christ is truly all that we need. 
And this means that we can have a cleansed conscience, a conscience that no longer accuses us or condemns us before God on account of our sins, knowing that our sins are forgiven, knowing that God's at work in us, and that gives us motivation to live for Him. That gives us motivation to put away sin. That gives us great encouragement. So, as Hebrews 10.22 says, let us draw nearer with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, a conscience that condemns us and says, Yo, you're guilty before God. You're going to stand condemned before Him if you don't get your act together. No, we've been cleansed by the blood of Christ, by the single sacrifice alone. And so we can draw near to Him with confidence. With confidence. That's something that the Old Covenant could never do because Christ's sacrifice is better. A seventh and final subject that reveals Jesus is better, and that is the city that he gives to us. Uh, We read at the end of chapter 10 that the Hebrews gladly received the plundering of their property because they were convinced of a better inheritance. This inheritance is not something that is seen, but is unseen. And this leads into the famous so-called Hall of Faith in chapter 11, Now, it's coming to view this as a call to be faithful like those listed in this chapter. And while certainly that's part of it, there is a call to be like them and persevering in the faith and looking to Christ, there's another important element that we should not overlook. You see, we need to remember that the author wrote this letter because the readers were tempted to go back to the Old Covenant, back to their works, back to walking by sight, and sensory experience. However, the writer says, all these Old Testament saints, while they had all these things to see and grasp, that the promised land, the sacrifices, the priests, the tabernacle, yet they looked forward to that which was unseen, even while under these things that are seen. Do you want the faith of the saints under the Old Covenant, those who truly believe? Do what they did, and look to that which is unseen. For example, Hebrews 11, 9-10 says that Abraham, while he was in the promised land, was looking for that city whose founder and builder is God. And verse 16 says that city is a heavenly one, not an earthly one. Moses too was looking to the reward, that which is unseen. This is why he starts out the chapter by defining faith as the conviction of things not seen. Walking by faith means that we know, as Hebrews 13, 14 says, here we have no lasting city, but we are seeking the city that is to come. And this new city that we are looking for leads us to live as strangers and foreigners here. When we know that this is not our home, when we know that we are not of the world, we live as strangers and aliens here. Our hope is not in this world. We Endure because we are convinced that we have a city which is to come. A city that has been provided for by our Lord Jesus Christ. And when we know that, we do not need sensory experiences in order to worship God. Because like the saints of old, we see Him who is unseen. And His glory alone is what satisfies our hearts and causes us to worship. And so as we go through Hebrews, may we see 
His glory. May we understand what it means to look to Jesus. We are going to be looking at His face. We are going to turn our eyes upon Jesus and look upon His wonderful face. And may the Holy Spirit help us to do that as we go through this wonderful book. Let's now turn to uh, the Lord's table. You have been listening to a message from Trinity Bible Church in Powell, Wyoming. To receive more information about Trinity Bible Church or to support the ministry, go to tbcwyoming.com. That is tbcwyoming.com.